Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. My name is Connor Heaney and I'm joined by Foundation Trustee John Walsh. Hello John. Hey Connor, how are you doing? I'm very well because I'm joined also by a very special guest. We have the Foundation's official conservator, Mr Alan Friswell, and he's joined us here in the studio to chat a little about some of the fantastic work he's been doing on the Ray Harryhausen collection. How are you, Alan? I'm very well, thank you, Connor, and very pleased to be here. Excellent. Well, we're pleased you could be here too because some of the work you've been doing this week is absolutely magical and I'm sure that Ray's fans are going to be really interested to hear what you've been getting up to. Professor, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading his way now. Get aboard! Alan, would you mind just explaining a little bit about how you came into contact with Ray Harryhausen and ended up working alongside him? Well, it was kind of straightforward and, and strangely uh, coincidental because I actually saw on Ray's website that the models would need to be restored. And I contacted Ray and explained. He kind of knew I was anyway because he'd seen my work before. But um, he asked for a meeting. I was very pleased to accept. And I took some models down to show him and we had a chat and uh, he actually gave me a model to restore, which was the tiny uh, little boy from Valley of Guanji, uh, Curtis Arden, who was pulled from the back of the horse by the pterodactyl. And he said, would you like to fix that? And we'll see how we get along. So I said, absolutely, I'd like to fix it. So I took it home and repaired him and brought him back and Ray was very pleased. And he said, would you like to do the do it officially, do it for real. I said, absolutely I would. And so that's how it started. What a job interview that is as well. Go, go, go. <laughs> Very much. Take this boy, take this small model of a boy from Guanji home and fix it and then we'll see about letting you loose on the, uh, the, the bigger creatures. That's pretty incredible. So you, you obviously please Dre. What do you think it was about the way that you work and the tools that you use and your methods that particularly impressed Ray because it's very, very difficult to find somebody with the skill set that you have and the ability to restore and conserve these models. Well, when we've had the first meeting, we seem to kind of get along in terms of our interests, uh, things like things that are not related to his films, things like Laurel and Hardy and Boris Karloff and Frankenstein, all sorts of things. And we seem to have a lot of uh, just sort of compatibility in terms of the way we saw things and I explained various possibilities of how models could be fixed, how they could be restored and he seemed very receptive and he seemed kind of pleased at my approach and of course when he gave me the stuff to do I think he was quite satisfied that with the original thing, the Valley of Wanji character, he was pleased with how it came out and I think I was using lots of traditional techniques as well which he was very appreciative of is very much a traditionalist in the way that he used to approach his work. And I think we just had a kind of compatibility with our way of looking at it and the way things should be done. 
It's fascinating though, isn't it? I mean, when we think about conservation, restoration and artworks, there's a controversy around whether things should be allowed to just kind of crumble in time and, and, and fall apart or should things be, be painted up? I mean, it's um, there, there is that constant debate in the, in the broadsheet press when museums are looking at restoring and, and recolorizing. But um, we, we have a kind of a, a, a dual-pronged approach here, don't we? Because we're trying to take as much photography as possible. We know that if Ray was here, he'd be working with Alan on these items. Um, and I suppose the, the slight problem we have is that Ray is... The only person Ray ever worked with is Alan. So we need to try and conserve Alan. <laughs> so how do we do that? <laughs> Well, I've been making sure he's well fed and looked after this week. We're, we're, we're preserving Alan for future generations too. But that is incredible. So you really, um, the spirit, because as, as John mentioned, Ray would have been working with you before Ray worked with you. Most of his his life he spent, you know, taking care of his own collection and he would make repairs if necessary. And uh, as he got a little older, that job was handed down to you on, on models he wished to see being restored. It's, it's really fascinating because when you look at the work that you've done on the models, it's indistinguishable. Um, and that's, I, I suppose, the whole point. You're not changing anything, you're not removing anything, you're not upgrading anything. You're restoring them to their original condition. Well, th- this is th- the real point, of course, is that despite what I'm doing, it's still Ray's work. Uh, they're not original models, they're not uh, created from my imagination. The, my job is actually to kind of channel Ray, if, if, you know, if, if I can put it that way and to bring the models back as close as I possibly can to their original state when Ray made them. Uh, so it's still Ray's work. I mean, that's the whole point. It's restoring what Ray did and what Ray designed and the products of his imagination. And so it's just a way of approaching that. I think that was why we kind of got along because we, we sort of, that was an understanding between us that it wasn't like I was attempting really to not recreate what Ray did, but reestablish it in effect. To bring it back to what it from what it had originally been. So tell us a little about the early models that you worked on during your partnership with Ray. Uh, under his supervision, you were able to restore some pretty famous creatures and items from the collection. Well, after uh, the model of Curtis Arden, I, I brought him back, and then Ray brought out the Allosaurus, which I was a huge shock because I thought it was going to give me something comparatively simple to work my way into it. And uh, I took him home and Ray sort of advised me about the things he wanted. He, put, he actually positioned the model before I took him away into the position he wanted. And he said the certain things he wanted doing and how he wanted to do it. And uh, I fixed him and he bit my thumb actually because his teeth are made of steel. And I was repairing his jaw and it actually went straight into my thumb. And Ray didn't tell me it was made of metal. I thought they were made of some sort of resin or plastic. So that was a, a surprise. And Ray was pleased with him, and I had the figurehead from Golden Voyage of Sinbad to repair, and the hands were completely destroyed on, on the figure because they did quite a bit of um, grabbing harpoons and things and throwing sailors over the side of the ship. And uh, I did that. I did the Brontosaurus from one million years BC, which was a huge problem because it was covered in cracks. There was thousands of tiny cracks all over the figure. The head had disintegrated completely, or the front of it had. And... Uh, the shell of the cephalopod from Mysterious Island. Ray had actually left it behind in Shepton Studios in 1961. And uh, he asked me to build a new one, a replacement model. But again, that was all to Ray's specifics. We had the original drawings, we had the original photographs. And I took measurements 
of all the dimensions, even how many wrinkles there were in the shell, so that we could duplicate that in, in exact detail. Um, Eohippus from Valley of Guanji, uh, the Studiomimus from Valley of Guanji, which was actually a resin copy because the original model is still in pretty good condition. So I repaired the resin copy because it, the leg had broken off and there were various bits of damage. Uh, the resin copy of the Ceratosaurus, because of course the original armature of the Ceratosaurus is now in Guanji. The Grand Luna from the First Man in the Moon. Uh, two copies of the Grand Luna that Ray asked me to construct because the original was... It's, he's better now, but he was quite fragile at the time. He's a little bit tougher now. But um, Ray wanted copies so they could be taken to various exhibitions. And the small baboon model from... Uh, Sinbad and the Either Tiger, which was more like a taxidermy job because chunks of his fur had fallen out, and various bits and pieces like that. Now, that's quite an incredible roll call of models to work <laughs> on. Could you just tell us a little bit, now that we know the mod, now that people can picture the models that you've worked on, and we'll obviously put some, some uh, photographs online when this podcast comes out, but can you tell us a little bit more about the techniques that you actually use and the materials that you're using to ensure that not only are these models being repaired, but that we're not coming back to you in five years' time saying it's happened again because, you know, unfortunately, latex does deteriorate over time. Well, I had a long chat with Ray about this right at the beginning because uh, initially the obvious uh, material to use for repairs will be rubber materials. The problem, of course, with that is that in time, the repair work would deteriorate because, of course, it's the same material that the model was made with originally, and that's right, they need restoration because they're, they're falling apart. So I suggested to Ray that perhaps the best material to use would be something that I'd kind of developed, really, which was uh, a polymer material, which has an acrylic liquid mixed into it, which is either flexible or solid, depending on how much of the mixture you put into it, into each other. And the great thing about this, it's workable with the uh, latex and foam latex because you're very compatible chemically but it doesn't deteriorate and so the repair is permanent it doesn't it's not going to go anywhere so the repair work will be here for a thousand years assuming that it, the model remains uh, physically undamaged by anybody and Ray was very pleased with that he, it was a very good idea as far as he was concerned so he said yes please do that and that was the way that we proceeded. So in terms of like the original storage when we think about where Ray kept these sometimes in the house that was centrally heated, sometimes in the garage at the back of the house, which was neither central nor heated. Um, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it, Alan, that some of these aren't in maybe perhaps a worse condition than they are today? It's very surprising, and Ray was surprised as well because some of the models uh, had lasted incredibly well. The uh, Struthiomimus or the Ornithomimus, depending on what your uh, interpretation of it is from Guanji, the small ostrich type dinosaur is still in very good condition it was the last time I saw it because Ray could still pull it around and it was flexible there was nothing really wrong with the rubber at all whereas other figures such as the Brontosaurus, although it hardly been animated, I think it was only animated for two shots uh, the feet had fallen apart, the, the, the tail and the neck had cracked terribly and it had hardly been used and Ray really put it down to the the batch of foam latex that he purchased at any given time. Sometimes it would be a very superior uh, chemical mix and other times it would be not so good. And he said it was really in the luck of the draw, depending on how good the latex was, that how long the model would last for. So it was, uh, Ray was very pleased. So yeah, Ray had a prototype model from Beast 20,000 Fathoms that was almost brand new and it was 1952. It was incredible. So it was really a bit of hit and miss depending on the, uh, the mix of, of, of rubber that Ray had access to at the time. But you you don't have access 
to the same sort of chemical batches because uh, changes in technology and chemical research and also the rules around you know uh, toxicity mean that you're not able to get the exact same batch are you so how, how do you deal with that no well it's uh with the it's kind of like my own recipe really it's something I, I kind of came up with a few years ago i've always been sort of how can i put it a bit of a sort of mad scientist i was always like that as a kid as a kid and i was messing around with like latex and foam rubber years ago and they're, they're basically polymer-based uh, materials. And I just came up with this thing that I, if you mixed it with a, a certain type of acrylic liquid, it becomes very flexible or very solid, depending on how much of it you, how much, how much mixture you make into one or the other. And um, you can use it for stop-motion models. But uh, no, I, I don't have access to the kind of stuff that Ray would have had in the, back in the day. Uh, as I say, perhaps nowadays, rubbers may not be... Uh, as long lasting i think uh, certainly silicon rubbers are very good but uh foam latex i'm not too sure about so alan what's been the biggest challenge would you say uh so far because at the moment we stopped you um mid restoration because this is a, a, a restoration period for you and we're going to talk in a moment about what you've actually been doing this week but have you seen anything that you've thought wow i, I don't know where to start on this not not really the the, the models so far have been the kind of thing that i've already handled so to speak the kind of thing i've already done so i don't really foresee any huge problems uh because i know the models are generally made the same way uh, there may be some props and bits and pieces some additional uh, weapons and things like that might, might come along but generally speaking the models are fundamentally made in the same using the same techniques so it's the complexity is in the the amount of damage that the model has sustained we've just been through guanji who was a uh, in quite a bad way and uh, the brontosaurus certainly was and so the the real the difficulty comes in the amount of restoration that's needed rather than approaching the model with different processes now you just mentioned guanji um that's one of several models that you've been working out throughout this week but i would say that the restoration of guanji is a very iconic moment for the foundation and i also know personally it was a, a a piece of work which meant a lot to you. Just when we retrieved Guanji from a storage and you saw him for the first time, I could see in your face how much it meant to you. What has it been like working on such a famous creature and one from a film that you have admitted to watching so many times as a youngster? It's um, it's something that's very difficult to actually grasp. Uh, it's almost like a being in a dream really because I have to kind of block myself off from memories of childhood while I'm working with it because I wouldn't be able to touch it I'd be so terrified of touching it let alone trying to, to restore it so yes it's it's something that I like all race creatures they're all great favorites of mine but Guanji was something that I have great memories of uh, I saw it way back when I was nine years old I saw it several times in the cinema I was lucky enough to see it on various re-releases uh, I, remember, I remember specific times watching it on television. It was something that, as a kid, I made so many models of, trying to get it right, trying to draw it correctly, and trying to make plasticine, modelling clay figures of it, and all sorts of things. If you'd said then that one day I'd be actually restoring the actual original model, it, I I wouldn't know what to do. It's it's an incredible thing for me to be able to do. It's a huge privilege and a great honour. Now, the collection itself is, um, for the first time ever, all in one space, and although we can't talk too much about that space... Um, you've certainly visited the collection before, Alan, and I know you used to visit Ray Regulate's house where a big chunk of uh, 
of the creatures used to live alongside their master. Um, but now, really, we're seeing everything from all of the paperwork because Connor's managed to get everything all in, as it were, in, in under one roof. Um, what does it feel like uh, stepping in and and? Uh, because Vanessa talks about the the as it were the, the the smell of all the creatures because they all have a certain distinct rubberized kind of smell. And um, what did you think when you entered the space? It was disbelief, really, because it's like it's like a combination of everything you've ever seen or dreamed about or heard about as a kid, and suddenly you're in one room and it's concentrated. It's like it's like energy. It's like solid energy with all these things. Even the things that are in boxes. It's like the the sort of power of these things is coming straight through the side of the box. Uh, the smell is something I remember from Ray's study because it was the smell of the rubber, and uh, that that was very kind of nostalgic. It took me right back, as it does, as it does Vanessa. She said the same thing, so it was an incredible experience. To actually, be, be sitting in that room restoring the models is something that is is very difficult to actually take in, let alone actually sort of participate in. So yes, it's it's an experience that is beyond belief, no question about it. Now this week. Um there's a special Blu-ray for um, 1 million years BC. It's been gloriously scanned in 4K by the good folk down there, 20th Century Fox. And, and myself and Connor are going to be chatting about it a bit later on. Um, but you've actually restored some of the stars of the film, haven't you, of 1 million years BC. Tell, tell us about that, Al. Well, I, I restored the Allosaurus. Um, he was interesting. As I said earlier, he, he bit my thumb because his teeth are made of steel, and as I, as I found to my cost. Um the game repairing him, uh, I remember as a kid drawing him from magazines and trying to get the leg muscles correct and all sorts of things and having the opportunity to even be in the same room with the model, let alone actually uh, restoring him, was incredible. Uh, the Brontosaurus, again, he was uh, terribly damaged despite the fact that he hardly did anything in the film, which was, Ray was always found it very strange, very inexplicable that, that the model was so so bad. Um and I did the uh, resin copy of the Ceratosaurus. He had some bits missing. He was uh, he needed a new paint job, and I put him onto a basis where he wanted to because to protect his feet. And uh, those are the three from that film that I worked on. So in a sense, you know, you're doing your job at that sort of this end, the cold face, as it were, with the real creatures. And the, the film companies themselves are actually then, you know, at the photochemical end, doing their very best to present these films often better than they were before so stereo sound perhaps for the first time restored and, and remastered in 4k which would be a higher definition than audiences would have seen from a projection print in the 1960s so um you know no one complains at that end do they nobody says oh we don't want to see it in hd we want to see a ropey old print from the mid 60s and mid 70s so i think it's it's interesting how there's sometimes a uh, a bit of hypocrisy around what we should and shouldn't do in terms of restoration and and restoring for the future. Um, have you seen many of Ray's films restored, Alan? What did you think when you saw them? I thought they were fantastic. I, I kind of understand the, the the kind of not nostalgic, but the kind of appreciation of the older versions of films because I suppose they're the ones that we all grew up with. Uh, it's not a question of liking change. It's just I suppose film as a as a unique kind of romantic feel to it i guess and uh some people will prefer that but i think ray would appreciate that his films being brought to the screen in the you know the 21st century in the best possible format possible you know he would love that he would think that was a great way and it was a way of keeping his films alive for new audiences so it's obviously a very positive thing to do 
and of course colorizing because connor gave an amazing talk didn't you connor tell us a bit about that because that ray was involved with that wasn't he yes and uh, the sinistrange festival in braunschweig germany we were able to present the european premiere of the colorized version of earth versus the flying saucers on the big screen and this is actually a project which ray worked upon so much like the way that ray worked with you when you were restoring the models you know he had to ensure that he was happy with everything that was being changed or altered or or otherwise being tweaked uh ray worked with legend studios to have three of his black and white films from the 1950s colorized because of course in ray's mind these films were not black and white when he envisaged them um he wanted them to be in color at the time but because of budget and logistical reasons that never happened so for Ray to be able to oversee the colorizations of his films meant a lot to him and also it tells you quite a lot about his the spirit in which he approached things I think uh, he was always happy to improve as we said before throughout his life he would repair his models when necessary and ensure that they weren't falling into disrepair and he wanted his films and his collection to be seen in the best possible light so now that Unfortunately, Ray is no longer here. We have to adhere to his spirit as much as possible. Um, whatever his wishes would have been for the collection, we have to try and follow along from that. So, definitely restored films, colorized films, and as as many sort of high quality Ray Harryhausen images and products as possible. I think it is definitely the right way to go. And as you say. With the models you're restoring, you're not changing them, you're not improving on them, but you are adding a longevity to them to ensure that they'll be around for future generations, which I suppose is very similar to what's happening with 4K restorations, Blu-ray releases, and everything on the film side of things, colorization as well. Now, in terms of the creatures, if you like, we bought to Germany, it was the saucers, which were in pretty good nick. So I think uh, almost unique within the collection, the, the flying saucers, some Earth versus the flying saucers, will, uh, will probably outlive us all. Um, I want to ask you, Alan, because you've obviously seen the collection in, in detail. Um, other than um, the saucers, because they're, they're, they're metal, uh, Bubo the Owl, um, what kind of condition is, is he in these days? Have you had a chance to have a look at We have a various Bubos, but um, there's, a, there's a large one and two smaller ones, isn't there? Well, I, I saw them at, at Ray's the last time. I haven't seen them in the collection here yet, but because of the material they're made from, they're pretty good. and They're not certainly not uh, in danger of uh, rotting away or falling apart. Uh, they might need a polish up now and again, but I think other than that, they're, they're pretty good. Yeah, they're, they're often a fan favourite. When Connor posts pictures of Bubo the Owl, there's a, there's a beautiful picture that Andy Johnson took of, of Bubo on, on a, like a little log and Ray's holding him. And uh, it's a fabulous photograph and we, we get tons of likes, hundreds and hundreds of likes and retweets when that, when that picture goes up. And, and for people who don't know, Alan, you have your own Facebook appreciation for Ray Harryhausen as well don't you the fantastic world of Ray Harryhausen on Facebook uh yes we do I I, I co-admin it with a chap called Al Davis who's a good friend of mine and he was uh he was a friend of Ray's for nearly 30 years he knew Ray and Dinah very well and uh we run it together we uh, have a lot of fun doing it and we always uh naturally share all the information that comes from uh, the foundation page and I think it's very popular we have a lot of uh interesting people a lot of professional people who are members, and uh, we have a lot of fun running it, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when we think back to the previous days and 
everyone knows now who listens to these podcasts, of course there was no internet, there was no dial-up or anything. Um, you know, Ray would be fascinated, wouldn't he, about the way that fans can keep in touch and stay in touch and it, for it to cost no money. You know, in the 70s or the 60s, you'd have to, to send off and subscribe or be a fan of and get the fan club information and pay for postage. But the idea now that you can set up what is effectively a, a fanzine and for it not to cost anything but the time and efforts that you put into it is quite um, it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Well, I would have certainly said it. I know Ray would have said that he would have learned how the original King Kong had been made a lot faster than he did had he had access to modern-day networking and websites and Facebook groups. Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm sure he would have been a great fan of the way things are today, how easy it is to access information and to communicate with people. It has made a lot of things easier. It's made it possible to, like I, what I've found, is basically to, to make friends with people who you'd never have met otherwise. You could never have hoped to talk to people in America and other places in the world so easily and so quickly. And to strike up great friendships and to communicate in a way that would not have been possible, of course, not, you know, quite recently. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing to have happened. And of course, one of the interesting things about Ray Harryhausen is that he always had that sense of being a magician who carefully guarded his tricks. So fans to this day are still debating about how he achieved certain techniques and how he achieved certain sequences um, because Ray never quite gave you 100% of the story. So there's so much room for really intriguing debate, not just from fans, but from professionals, from animators and from model makers who have a very insightful opinion on these matters and are able to shed some light and very interested in discussion. So that's one of the things I find most interesting about your group is the level of knowledge amongst the fan base and the debates that rage on to this day from films that are sometimes 50 or 60 years old. Well, that's that's one of the great uh, pleasures of the group because we have people on there who are dedicated fans. We have very pe- people who are silly people don't last very long on there. It's not that kind of a group. Although it's a fun group, and we try to keep it very amusing sometimes and very funny. Uh, and of course, because we have people, all of whom are such great fans of Ray, they're very knowledgeable people. Not all, no, they don't have to be a professional person to have a great knowledge of his films and the techniques because he's such a, a fascinating subject anyway. And there are many, many debates and, and conversations. Some get quite involved uh, talking about Ray's his life and things, but how film techniques were used and type of processes, it can go into great detail. Things Threads can go on for ages and ages, and it's quite good. We, we try and encourage that because obviously it stimulates interest and it stimulates people to communicate with each other, which is the whole point, really. It's, a, it's such a valuable resource, and it's something that I know if, if only Ray could have seen it, I think he'd been fascinated with... The, certainly the foundation page he would have been a, probably an active participant I'm very sure of that he would have been you may not have come on there personally but he would have certainly been giving you messages and, and all sorts of things to have posted on there he would have been very interested in, in the way this is now so as we sort of look towards the future and we've been talking about technologies and high definition and so on we talked didn't we Alan about possibly doing something different with the models maybe refrigerating them in, in some form I mean, as, as we think in terms of five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years for the collection, what, what are your thoughts and predictions as to how, how best now to, to keep things moving forward in the positive, restored? I mean, we don't want to recreate B-jams or Iceland and put everything in the freezer. <laughs> but we, we, we do need to think, don't we, about uh, real temperature-controlled refrigeration? Well, yes, it's the three the three big problems with rubber is atmosphere and light and heat. Uh, 
heat is probably the worst so if they're in a cool environment it's obviously very desirable to keep them in that if you know not say specifically put them in the fridge but i mean that it wouldn't hurt it, it's that, that kind of temperature is very friendly to rubber um strong lights particularly sunlight can be damaging so it's as well to keep them away from that and there are elements in the atmosphere like ozone in the atmosphere can actually cause uh, deterioration of the chemical element in rubber that's actually holds the molecules together it's one of the reasons why it falls apart so as as dark and as airtight and as cool as possible is the the best way to preserve Ray's models I think. So if Ray had put something in the fridge 30 or 40 years ago and the fridge was left on and he'd only taken it out now it would be what do you think in, in pretty pretty good condition it would have it would have not aged at all in 30 or 40 years do you think or? I don't think it would have I don't think so. If there was any, any damage, it would be so minimal because the three main reasons why it deteriorates would have been taken away. So it would be in the dark, it would be in the cool, and it would be airtight. So I think it would have lasted very well. All I can say is thank you for all of your years of friendship with Ray Harryhausen and for helping us here at the Foundation with, uh, with restorations. And as I said, we need to refrigerate you, Alan, and keep us with you as long as possible <laughs> in a small dark place with no lights, no air, and a con- constant temperature. <laughs> <laughs> yes. thanks very much John thank you very much and I think um, the work you've done this week has been really incredible and I know that Ray's fan base is going to be so excited to see what you've done with we've worked on a selenite but I think especially on the model for Guanji and we'll definitely share some of the pictures of the work that you've carried out and give people a better understanding of the level of work that you've carried out and the t- kind of techniques that are involved as well as the finished model, because it's incredible. The model for Guanji now looks exactly as it did back when Ray was holding it for promo pictures back in 1969, and that's just a testament to what a fantastic job you've done this week. So thank you very much, Alan, and thanks for sharing some of your knowledge and memories of Ray Harryhausen. Well, thank you very much, Connor. It's been an, a huge honour for me to have even been allowed to be in the same room with Ray's models, let alone do the work that I've been doing. It's been great to meet you too. It's been a wonderful experience coming down here and I've enjoyed myself enormously. So thank you very much as well. Excellent. Well, anybody who wishes to find out more about Alan's work should visit our, first of all, the Foundation's Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Ray Harryhausen. We'll also post some of these pictures onto Twitter, which is twitter.com slash Ray underscore Harryhausen. And look out for Alan's group, The Fantastic World of Ray Harryhausen, which is a, which is a private group. To, um, you can search for it, but uh, you need to apply for membership. Is that right, Alan? That's correct. It's a public group, but uh, we have to, yes, we, we, you have to apply for membership. It's not an open group. So, yeah, but definitely worth taking a look at because there's some fascinating discussions on there and you can mingle with some of Ray's most um, passionate fans and knowledgeable fans too. You can mingle with a lot of people who knew Ray as well. This is one of the great things about the group is so many of the members are people who are friends with Ray. And so they have their personal stories to tell as well. Good stuff. Good, good. And just a a shout out to another podcast. I did an interview with 60 Minutes With, which is a podcast that's been running now for quite a few episodes. And Dave Robertson interviewed me on the weekend to chat about the work of the Foundation and other things. And, uh, And Alan Friswell gets a name check in that as well. So... Um, Alan, if you haven't seen 60 Minutes With then um, the current episode, then you get a name check. So, congrats. Thank you very much. It's very much appreciated. One million years BC erupts on the screen with volcanic excitement.
Excellent. Now we're moving on to a very exciting release, Connor, aren't we? Something that I kind of predicted might not be released because there's been some talk online and in in cinema foyers that the Hammer film, uh, One Million Years BC, which is a remake of the 1940 classic with Victor Mature, um, can't be released on Blu-ray because there's no camera negative and no interpositive. Those clever boys and girls down at 20th Century Fox have found either one or both and have scanned in 4K um, the entire film. It's got uh, stereo sound for the first time. Myself and Connor have had an advanced preview copy of it. And uh, what did you think, Connor? Well, it looks fantastic. And it's it's ironic because we obviously recorded our 50th anniversary special for 1 million years BC earlier this year. And you were lamenting the fact that it might never see the light of day for a, for Blu-ray or 4K restoration. Um, I wonder if the chaps at 20th Century Fox listened to that uh, podcast and were, were G'd on because the preview copies that we've seen are fantastic. It looks wonderful. It's the kind of film which really cries out for a restoration and a 4K release because of the wonderful scenery and landscapes and, of course, Ray Harryhausen's fantastic animation work. And it was a real joy to see. And I know it's something that Ray's fans have been crying out for and really asking after for years. So it's great to see that hitting the shelves this week. It is. I mean, and it's um, it's the long version of the film. People have asked which version is it. Is it the, the, the 90 or the 100-minute version? It is the 100-minute version. So it has, I think I'm right in saying, it has all of those um, sequences that um, everyone missed from the different releases do we do we know which which version was shorter well i suspect it was the u.s version was shorter um because um the censors would often chop things around if they wanted to make it for for a use certificate audience yes one of the biggest uh, missing scenes from the shortened version is uh, our good friend martine beswick's dance in the middle of the film where she kind of performs a i guess a tribal ritualistic dance in front of the rest of her um, her tribe, and it may have been considered to be a little too a little too risque for American audiences. There's a couple of other smaller scenes as well. There's some uh, rather gruesome hints at cannibalism, um, and a few of the kind of bloodier and gorier scenes. Which, let's face it, you're really looking for in a in a Ray Harryhausen dinosaur epic. Um, so those are all available. A lot of people have asked about that, and it's certainly it's the full version of the film. And there's nothing missing. It looks wonderful. Uh, the the sound of the film as well, the score by Mario Nassimbeni, um, is just it's just incredible. I think it's so different from the rest of Ray's movie soundtracks that, in its own right, it's really fascinating to listen to, and it just fits the primitive atmosphere of the film. So when you're watching it in Blu-ray and in high definition, it really just hits home what a what a fantastic combination of sight and sound the movie has, despite having no dialogue at all. Yes, and I do wonder, because this is the film that Ray was a gun for hire on, so he artistically wasn't in control of who was directing, who was writing, and particularly who the composer was. So I suspect this wouldn't have been Ray's first choice. I'm watching the film again. It's a great film. The music is of its time. But had Bernard Herrmann scored One Million Years B.C.? I think, you know, some of the, the sequences with the dinosaurs would have been even more dramatic. Um, I, I think that the um, when you know how films are put together and spotting sessions that are done with composers, sometimes I think the music has been dialed in in places where it wasn't intended. 
um, and that the theme recurs quite a few times as well. There's that percussive um, tribal clicking theme and then there's the main theme and they're sort of interchangeable so it's um it's not the ray the way ray would have scored a film and when we think of the much more lyrical arabian adventures and miklos rocher and bernard herman and even roy budd for sinbad and the eye of the tiger um these are much more lyrical scores that fit the sequences and have clearly been spotted um in an edit to those sequences um i, I do wonder about the choices that Hammer make um, with some of these films, but certainly in terms of cinematographer Wilkie Cooper and the director Don Chafee, these are people that, uh, and Brian Clemens, of course, who wrote Golden Voyage of Sinbad, these are the Harryhausen pool of people. So I suspect that was part of the pull of why he, he went and did this, but he never did it again. So he didn't think, oh, I like being a gun for hire. <laughs> I think he didn't like it. Um, and you contributed something very special to the extras, Connor, something that um, is certainly going to be on the UK release from Studio Canal. And that was a, uh, a missing dinosaur, which you found. Tell us about that. That's right. Um, many fans may be aware of the fact that the Brontosaurus makes a tantalisingly short appearance in the film. Um, it wanders by the mountains in the distance near the film start, and it's only on screen for really less than a minute. But the original plan for the Brontosaurus was him to reappear at the film's finale. Um, so he was going to terrorise the cave people a little uh, before being embroiled in the volcanic eruption which which ends the film. Um, this was originally in the script and we have some fantastic key drawings for that which have been seen in the past in the book The Art of Ray Harryhausen. But what I was able to uncover especially for this release, was actually storyboards for this unfilmed finale. And it's fantastic to see step by step just how Ray envisaged the film's end with the brontosaurus poking his head into the cave, picking up cavemen with his teeth, falling into the lava. It it would have been a wonderful ending, uh, just sadly for budgetary reasons, budgetary reasons it was never filmed. But now with this Blu-ray, people can, can watch the never seen before storyboard for the brontosaurus ending alongside some of Ray's original artwork and other storyboards for the movie now the artwork as many people know Ray's key drawings are incredible um, his the way he visualized sequences and the level of detail in his artwork I'm sure most Ray Harryhausen fans are aware of that but there's something about this film which is almost completely unique and that's the mixed media storyboards. So to save time, and this may well tie into what you were saying, John, about Ray being a gun for hire on this film. Uh, Ray was on location taking lots of photographs of where he knew animation would take place. He would then have the photographs developed and draw over them. So draw his creatures over the top. So he'd draw, for example, the Archelon um, over the top of some scenery. And in fact, in the in the storyboards, uh, which are on the DVD extra, so you see the Ar Archelon picking someone up, so he's a lot fiercer in his original incarnation. And I think these these um, mixed-media storyboards are fascinating. I think probably at the time it was just a matter of convenience and uh, necessity, but looking back at them 50 years later, they look wonderful. They look really quite special. And the only other film that I'm aware of which Ray undertook this technique was Earth versus the Flying Saucers, 
which we know was one of his, again, most time-pressured films. He'd, he he would be in Washington taking pictures and then animating or draw, drawing his plans for animation over the top of the photographs. But for, for that film and for One Million Years BC, we have now what are works of art in their own right. Absolutely. And for people who tune into our podcast, you'll be glad you have because we have a competition to give away copies of the Blu-ray, courtesy of the good folks down at Studio Canal. And uh, as we say, this is going to be, um, we expect, the definitive release for this um, Harryhausen classic, which is celebrating its, uh, its uh, 50th birthday this year. So, uh, Connor, how can, we, uh, how can we win a copy? Well, you can win a copy by answering the following question. Which one million years BC actress ties in Ray Harryhausen, Hammer Pictures and James Bond? So which actress from the film ties in those three legendary institutions of cinema? Um, if you know the answer to this, you can get in touch with us. Please send us a private message on Facebook or a direct message on Twitter. And the lucky winners will be selected at random. And you win a fantastic copy of One Million Years BC on Blu-ray. And I should point out it's a double disc. So anybody who hasn't quite made the upgrade to Blu-ray yet, you'll still be able to watch it. Because there's a DVD in there as well. So you'll have a copy of each. And um, they look fantastic. The artwork and everything else is wonderful. And you'll be able to watch th- this classic film on its 50th anniversary in high definition for the first time. And there's brand new interviews with Raquel Welsh and Martine Beswick. As well as uh, Connor's beautifully curated and researched images um, as mentioned. Yes, two very fascinating interviews with, uh, with two actresses who look wonderful. Um, and who have very fond recollections of Ray Harryhausen, both of them talking at length about what a genius Ray was, how much of a privilege it was to watch him animate, and their memories of a film which has really gone down in history. It's iconic, and it's great to see it getting the full high-definition release. One million years BC, when the earth parted and the mountains fell. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As we said, take part in our competition. You've got a great chance to win a fabulous prize. And keep listening for special interviews, updates and announcements in our future podcasts because we've got some interesting plans ahead. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned. Copyrights in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2016. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in parts without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts are not necessarily reflective of those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. Mm-hmm.